Amen. Let us pray. Oh, speak to us, O oh Lord. Speak to us through your word tonight. Speak to our hearts. Give us the discernment that comes from your word. Help us to apply your truth and to be transformed by, by who you are, ultimately by your grace that fills us and grants us, Lord, the grace to obey and follow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you might have heard of the classical musician Beethoven. Beethoven, it seems that it might have been poisoning himself. So a scientist from Illinois has suggested he has studied some of the strands of hair from the, the body of this famous classical music composer, Ludwig van Beethoven from Germany. And he found 100 times the normal amount of lead that you will find in a common human being. The untimely death at age of 57 was due to lead poisoning. He was uh, attending this mineral SPA that he went for relaxation. And there, through what he thought was going to give him relief, he found death. The very thing that he thought was bringing him some relief for his problems slowly was poisoning him to death. And friends, there's a sense in which false teaching does exactly that. It really not only spreads some information, but it leads people to engage in certain practice, embrace certain ideas that are spiritually poisonous. They think that by embracing those ideas, you can become more spiritual. But in reality, it gradually brings to being poisoned to eternal death, ultimately. And so, here in chapter 1 of Titus, Paul has to warn Titus of the, the church having to act that something must be done when there is any poisonous teaching that is taking over the churches, which cause immense spiritual damage in God's flock. And such dam damage comes today in verse 10 to the end of chapter 1 in what I would call graceless teachers. If you were with us last time, it was kind of the foundational beginning of us studying chapter 1 of Titus. And we look at kind of a review of what it means to be grace-filled teachers and the qualifications for being grace-filled teachers. Now we come to the graceless teachers, verse 10 onward. We, we saw that they, these teachers are grace-filled because they are full with Jesus. And we know that Jesus was full of grace and truth, right? And just like He was full of grace and truth, it means grace in particular, there in John 1, we already went through this, that the law was only looking at the outward behavior, but grace came through the gospel, Right? God came and saved us where we could not save ourselves. God came in our sin while we were still sinners and He died for us. And that grace has been showed as an unmerited favor at the cross through the gospel. And is a free gift of God that you cannot earn by your works. But you embrace this grace of God 
And it's a gift that God gives you with no string attached. It's, it's out of His benevolence, out of His mercy, out of His kindness to a wretched sinner like me and you. This is God's grace. However, verse 10 onward tells us of these teachers who have never experienced the grace of God. That the real root problem of their behavior is unlike the grace-filled teachers we saw last week. We, we looked at the qualification of an elder that he needs to be above reproach. Faithful to his wife, having faithful children, hospitable, lover of good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. These uh, other false teachers were graceless. They were self-willed, quick-tempered, given to addiction, violent and greedy. And they wanted people to come back to Judaism under the bondage of the law, wanting people to serve God out of guilt and not out of the grace of God. And we talk with the first nine verses about the charge that Paul gives to Titus to appoint elders in every church. Pastor, bishop, elder is the same word. We notice the fact that the church is not meant to work like a democracy. God has seen fit to appoint elders, leaders in the local church. Because he has not promised a measure of wisdom to all the congregation. Now, some elders are more focused on the gift of teaching, others in the management, but there's, there's still that umbrella of elders. We looked at the fact of elders also including church discipline. What God gives to Jesus, to Peter, is the keys of the kingdom. And those keys of the kingdom in Matthew 18 were not meant to be Obviously abused, but there is a place for church discipline. And ultimately opening the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel as well. And so that was what we saw the need of also to have a plurality of elders, not just one. We mentioned uh, Moses and the case of the burnout and the problem of just one elder. And also avoiding the abuse of authority when there's a plurality of elders. We talked about the importance of meaningful church membership. That no Christian is an island. That uh, although the New Testament doesn't clearly give us a chapter and verse for membership, it is implied that there is a commitment to God and to a local body of believers. We talked about the church almost as an embassy to heaven. And the church membership in that illustration is almost a passport. Now, it's not a, a normal and it's not healthy for a Christian, therefore, not to be a member of a local church. We looked at the qualifications and the character and the ability to teach of an elder. We looked at the role of the elder as primarily to pray, preach, and exercise spiritual oversight in that specific order. Prayer, minister of the word, and oversight, spiritual oversight. We saw the difference between elders and deacons. And we looked at uh, Timothy and what Timothy had to say about it. We saw that because there was this great need of certain areas, the early church was overwhelmed with several things and deacon-like tasks. God saw fit to appoint deacon in Acts chapter 6. And the beauty here is that God uses the body of Christ through leaders, but also through members in the church. Not everyone is dissimilar. We are like a body. One is the hand, one is the foot, one is the eye. Everyone has a different 
gifting that he uses for the health of the church. And so the main theme of this letter we said last time is that God's grace leads us to good work. It is through the, the gospel that we come to good works and not just good works in general, but works that are done through a believer in faith. We can do works not in faith like we will see this, uh, the case of the graceless teachers that uh, they were doing out of contempt and hating others or uh, those works do not no longer qualified as good in the sight of God because they're not done in faith. So the problem we see tonight is, as we saw last night, last um, two Sundays ago, is that if you believe lies about God, then it leads to bad work. And if you embrace the truth, then it leads to good works, or it should be. So liars and false teachers were only producing bad works and together with Timothy, Titus, Paul writes Titus to tell him in Crete, he's there in an island in in Greece to deal with this particular problem. The whole reason he wants them to establish elders is because the island was known for moral decay. We'll see today even a way of saying back then. And so Titus' task was not easy. He was facing opposition to sound teaching. Heresy that has risen within those local churches that Paul, in his missionary journey, had established. And so those heresies had had to be refuted. Uh, Particularly with Jewish people. Uh, We briefly mentioned it this morning, but Jewish people, the the so-called Judaizers are called, that were coming to Christians and telling them, now you need to be following the whole Old Testament law, the ceremonial law, be circumcised in order to be saved. And because of this false teaching, it was leading to an erosion in the moral character of these false teachers who had gained a foothold in the churches. And so Titus must establish both truthful and godly leaders in every church. Because the ungodliness, the speculation of these uh, false teachers, the empty talk, the, the the lies that they were spreading, focused on a Jewish mythology almost, genealogies, uh, quarrels about the law. They were profitless. They were pointless. They were not leading you to actually become more like Christ. It's uh, almost like in modern day Judaism, the Kabbalah and all the mysteries about the law and this and that. And it was speculation. Godless living was resulting from these beliefs or was almost justifying those beliefs. Not just for then this life and bad behavior, but ultimately for a judgment of God. And so we have the task of the true teachers to counteract false teachers through sound preaching, verse 9. And now Paul tells us further, tell Titus what the task entails. And we see that false teachers must be recognized and rebuked for the health of the people around them and also for their own good. So that they turn away from those false teachings and embrace the truth. So the first uh, command that Paul has for Titus is to recognize those who are opponent or opponents of grace. Remember the f- framework here is of Jew- Jewish people who want to bring Christians back to Judaism. And the uh, other letters expounds on this heresy, Galatians in particular. But now we see the traits of these people. Verse 10. The whole reason, there starts four, 
The reason why Paul goes through the list of elder qualification that we saw last time is to contrast false teachers' behavior. Jesus told us, you shall know them by their fruits, right? And so the argument of Paul here is tied up to the qualification for pastors in the church. To have godly elders in the church is all the more urgent because there is a lot of people, our text tells, tells us, that are unsubordinate, rebellious, disobedience, idle talker, vain talker, which means they engage in meaningless talk, nonsense. But they are also deceivers, almost coming with these false doctrines as seducers. They themselves are deceived, but they are now trying to make other people believe lies that are misleading people from the truth. And so the, ultimately, these are elders who are disqualified, we could say, and that have caused problems among churches. Upsetting, our text in verse 10 tells us, whole families, disrupting families in the church. I mean, family, an entire family can be upset completely by the righteous conduct of one, just one of its members. And false teachers had crept in into families and they were mentally brainwashing them. And that's why we call them the opponents of grace. Why? Because they're, they're in verse 10, focusing on circumcision. There you have it. We mentioned this morning Acts 15 and the, the, the challenge of unless you're circumcised and you keep the whole law, then you're not really a Christian. And Jewish people wanted Gentile converts to Jesus to go back to keeping the whole ceremonial law. And the problem was that they wanted that in order to save them. Circumcision for salvation which denies undermines the truth of the gospel that we are saved by faith alone through christ alone by grace once again and paul says in verse 11 whose mouths must be stopped they must be silenced paul is compelled to tell titus to 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 shut them up otherwise the error will spread like gangrene because you see, what you believe impacts the way you live, and it contaminates the whole church. Verse 11 tells us they teach things they ought not to. They have no right to teach. Why? Because they are dangerously teaching incorrect and false things about God. And that teaching led to impure living. Look at that. For the sake of dishonest gain. False things in order to get the money out of people. That the bad works reveal something that they believed was wrong. And so they got to be silenced, Paul says to Titus. It's almost they entered into some sort of church and they displayed themselves as ministers of God. For however, the sake of quick, fast money, they didn't buy. In, and Paul is saying, don't buy into their talk. I think of Joel Osteen, you know. He has a $75 million a year that he gets for all the books that he publishes. It's not going to end well for him. But even the widest, widespread calls that now are ri rising. I mean, I was hearing of a cult years ago uh, back in Michigan where entire families had been completely destroyed because one of the person got into this false cult, this sect, and they were 
they were disappearing. Their children were disappearing out of the blue and they found them dead. I mean, this is pure demonic stuff. When you get into false teachers trying to creep into the, take the sheep. And that's why Titus must rebuke them. Like the shepherd making sure the wolves don't get into the flock. Verse 12. He makes a comment there that was a common saying, a cultural reference to Crete. Because Titus is in Crete. And he says this, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. I mean, that, that is something quite of an insult. But the point is, they had the reputation of being idle, coupled with the love for food. That makes me think about Italian people, by the way. They got those two things, <laughs> honestly said. But a prophet of their own, and here is talking about Epimenides, possibly, who wrote in the 6th century this... this uh, this saying, this is the irony here because it's almost like here's an exception where the Cretans are not liars. They acknowledge their own lies that they, they in fact are liars. The Cretans are always liars. That's the only time they're truthful. Sad truth is that Titus now is a minister right there in that lawless place. And so he must keep his eye on this false teaching. Uh... Martin Luther said once, a lie is like a snowball. The further you roll it, the bigger it becomes. And it becomes like an avalanche that takes over and destroys everything. That's why you must recognize false teaching by the conduct, by the behavior, the sinful conduct in this case of the false teachers. The law for bad teaching leads to wrong living. But notice also how wrong living many times leads you to seek wrong teaching to justify the same bad living. You think about the gospel of prosperity. It's just a cover up for my covetousness. And so I invent a version of the gospel that fits in into my bad living. Or the denial of Christ's deity we talked about this morning. Or placing certain commands like the Judaizer as requirements for salvation. You gotta do this to be saved. You gotta, instead of saying, Lord, look, to be saved, you have to believe in Christ. You have to have faith in Him. Or the opposite side is also true, friends, of those who are denying Christian obedience in the Christian life, what we call antinomian heresy. That they're saying, okay, you know, those commandments of God about, you know, the moral commandments, well, God loves you. You don't need to do them anymore. And it's, it's okay. You don't need to repent. You, you, repentance is a work. Therefore, you don't need to repent. <laughs> and or it's like when you, you do something wrong, it's like just, just rest in Jesus. Like that's, that's not the way to go about this, friends. And that is the other error of the free grace, which means we must keep the balance here of what the Scripture says about both and keep uh, steady in between those two ditches. Because false teaching must be stopped or it spreads like gangrene. It destroys the lifeblood, not just of churches. A little leaven levels the whole lump of dough. But even society. Can you imagine? Crete, entire nations and city gain a banned reputation from outsiders. I mean, if you say West Tennessee, you know, those heathen and city folks across the river. Like, they get a bad reputation for things that are coming out of that. And even a church in... It takes in the poison of the culture, but it starts, notice, like our text says, in the family. 
Then it spreads into the church. And the false teachers disguise themselves as true teachers. And now the church is under siege by false doctrine. But Jesus told us, you shall recognize them by their fruits, which in this case is the behavior, their gracelessness, their inability to do, as we'll see, any good works. So our doctrine shall match our living. We saw this last time. But how sad is when, again, false teaching is a way to justify immorality. I mean, you think about now it is transgender propaganda. It's, it's an example that is becoming increasingly real for us. What really lies behind even so-called Christians who are getting and saying, you know, we need to accept this. And or we need to tolerate, you know, some of this cultural understanding of sexuality. Is, this, is actually the desire to affirm people's sin. The unwillingness to, to repent. And so how do we recognize liars, false teachings? I mean, a false teacher, a liar, cannot tell the truth. He focuses on himself more than Jesus. He demands you to, to do things against the truth. He boils down God's word. The word of God is no longer... It's almost a, a tool for his goal, but it's not the goal. And it can be true of any of us if we remain, honestly, without grace, unregenerate. That's what we are. That's why what we need the most is not to get religious or go to church, but to get transformed. To actually embrace God's grace and thank God that through Jesus Christ, depraved people and liars even can be forgiven but they turn away from their the deception they turn away from false doctrines and so sometimes however God has to shake us with drastic rebukes whether it's you hear of people who came out of cults or people who came out of uh, bad teaching and drastic uh, rebukes whether it's through preaching or through other Christians like shook them up snatched them out of the fire and brought them to realize that they needed a change or they were, that what they were believing was a lie. And once they understand that that was a lie, it brought kind of a, a change in their mindset. That leads us to the second point, which is the rebuke opponents of grace. We don't just recognize them with their fruits and the way they behave, but also we rebuke them. Verse 13, we rebuke opponents of grace because, again, this is the... Verse 13 says, this is the testimony, the witness is true. That reputation of the credence is true, what, what Paul is saying. That is all the more a reason why Paul is commanding the church to correct and rebuke. And not only rebuke them, but it says, rebuke them sharply, severely, relentlessly, rigorously almost. Cutting them short. Later in uh, chapter 2, verse 15, Paul repeats the same thing. Titus must rebuke with all authority. Now, is this ungracious? Are you being a little bit too sharp, Paul? I remember, you know, I got problem with pastors who are absolutizing this idea of you need to be gentle as always and be nice. Like not hurting anyone's feeling. And I think about Vody Bokan in particular, that he has... A, um, a thought, a very brief thought on this, and he, he almost compares it to a soldier who is fighting and has the, the soldiers come, 
comes takes a child out of conflict, obviously he's doing something nice, yes, but it's not everything that he's doing, right? And so Varibakan says, well, that's the same thing with God. It's obviously, he's gracious and, and teachers, as we saw last time, needs to be gracious, but it's not everything they are. And that's because God is not everything that he is. He's just nice at all the time. If that is your idea of God, then you got a problem. There are times where we need to call sin out. Name false teachers by name. Fight, contend, and agonize even for the faith, says the epistle of Jude. Especially when uh, key biblical doctrine are at stake. That can impact the gospel. That almost makes it necessary. Just like John Calvin says, you have the pastor has two voices. One to call the sheep and one to rebuke the wolves. I want to say that even with heresy, sometimes it's even more tricky because they camouflage themselves as something that is Christian, something that has a flavor of Christianity. And we saw some things this morning with the Sabbath. By the way, let me clarify something. Just because uh, the, the, the Pharisees were perverting the commandment of the Sabbath, I, I think as Christians, we still, in the New Covenant, want to obey the Lord by resting and finding rest. We call to obey God even by resting. And, uh, and, but again, here is the rebuke that he gives that God is a lot more than being nice. Rebuke them sharply. The soldier had a weapon and a child. He was nice, but not all that he was. That's certainly nice, but not all. It's a lot more than that, says Vodibakan. So leaders and Christians... We're not just to be nice all the time. We're not just to think about, oh, I just never need to offend anyone, step on anyone's toes. Listen, when truth is at stake, when there's a place then for open rebuke, so that people may be sound in the faith, healthy in doctrine, free from error, free from make-believe, made-up rules of man that are trying to pervert the gospel, even for the good of the person in error, by the way, so that he might repent. Because you see, grace is not cheap. It, it means correction. It means even at times sharp rebuke. And pastors particularly needed to be on guard in Crete, appointed to protect the flock from this type of false teaching. And verse 14 tells us that the problem was sidetracked. The problem with these Jewish leaders, false teachers, is they got sidetracked by giving heed to Jewish myths, fables. Uh, myths was a very thing in Crete. I mean, you have the famous uh, myth of Daedalus and Icarus and other Greek mythology. But here, it's more in view that Jewish people, again, that are following legendary tales or numerology around certain letters and mis mysterious riddles about number and this and that. It might sound familiar as you open YouTube and see some, some of that stuff. But again, he's saying, this is commandments of man legalistically driven, work-based righteousness, implying turning away from the truth of God's Word. That's what was happening. The, 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 the striking fact of verse 14, turning away from the truth, means that once they were Bible-believing Christians, once they claimed to believe in the Gospel, but their excessive focus on this speculation is already showing you that they have rejected the truth. Did you notice that Christ is no longer the center of their thoughts? And this verse, verse 15 continues, the speculation 
the speculation produced were only fruitless emphasis on external, the ceremonial law, cleanness. That was a big thing in the Jewish law. To clean the outside but not the inside, says Jesus to the Pharisees. They were worried about outward religion, but inside they were filled with corruption within. And Paul had to bring Titus back to the reality of what Christian freedom really is. I mentioned it briefly this morning with Martin Luther and the freedom of the Christian. But the new covenant means that Christ makes all things clean. And warned us that uncleanness does not depend any longer on external or outward things. Uncleanness comes from the heart. From what comes from within the man. That then when it comes out, whether it's filthy talk, whether it's gossip, whether it's hate, whether it's all sort of things... It defiles the man. And that's why that freedom in verse 15 is this. That for the pure, all things are pure. That you have been purified by the gospel. Then now you are free in Christ. But if you're still under bondage, it says to the defiled, the unbelieving, which in this case were the false teachers, nothing is pure. Their mind and conscience are defiled. The discernment of this person, this false teacher, is completely broken. It's completely without a compass. Everything, even the most subjective matter, becomes a ground for graceless and loveless argument and debate. You, you probably met people like that. But that's what it means to be graceless, to be enslaved to certain, you know, speculation. There's no true joy and freedom as Christ gives us. Verse 16 gives us the final summary to the problem of these graceless teachers. That they profess to know God, but they deny Him with their works. See, the, the main theme of Titus is again, that God's grace should lead you to good works, right? But these people are professing to know God, but they deny Him with their action. That's why the gospel and the Christian life is meant to lead to good works. The problem here is that they cannot produce any real good work. Because none of their works are done in faith. None of their works are done through the grace of God. On the contrary, they are abominable, disobedient, disqualified. Or the translation says unfit. They have intentions to do good, but they don't stand the test. Why? Because they are unconverted. And ultimately... Any of their attempt at doing good is worthless. It turns into contemption and sin. John Calvin once says, As Christ is the end of the law, and the gospel and Christ as within himself all the treasure of wisdom and understanding, so also is he the mark at which all heretics aim and direct their arrows. That they attack the gospel attack Jesus Christ. The heretics ultimately want to rob you of God's gift through faith in Jesus Christ. And so what you must do now, you identify their behavior, but you also must rebuke false teaching to wake them up from deception. It's almost being under some sort of drug. And you must wake up. We must, yes, seek to be patient, Titus, Timothy, Outline a character we saw last time of a pastor who was, yes, gentle. And, but there are times when we need to be firm, condemning false teaching. There is a place in our witness in the church for bold confrontation, yes. Especially when there's no positive response to rebuke. 
I mean, think how bad. If you follow that practice of just being, you know, always gentle with your children, but never address their sin, and if you don't do anything about it, that sin is going to mount up. It's going to mount up until it's going to possibly destroy your family. That's why Proverbs says, you know, not to spare discipline, because you will save your child's life. But this is still out of love, and I want to point what true love is here. That there is a direct and decisive action needed for the love of the church. And that comes through church discipline. Which sounds like a scary word. Sounds like something, oh man, that is so unloving. But it's the most loving thing to do. To avoid the spreading of sin. The church corporately acts, or should act, to confront someone's sin. Calling them to repent. Calling them to turn back after, however... You know, depending what type of sin, I mean, it's, it's the last straw, obviously, after repeated and repeated, 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 and with the goal of restoring him or her to wholesome life, the wholesome repentance. This is the tool God gave us to stop the spreading of sin in the church. So if people within the church, like in, in Crete, were spreading lies or acting immorally, it would be wrong and unloving to say nothing or treat it as a secondary issue to keep the peace. And likewise with false doctrine, especially I think of many attacks, many errors of false doctrines that are coming in the church in North America right now, especially you know, postmodernism, we think the truth does not exist anymore. Truth is relative. So any, any statement you say is like, it's your own subjective understanding. You know, the, the, the attack on the inspiration of Scripture, that every word to the last word of Scripture is inspired by God, and is authoritative, which means I have to submit to it. And uh, that is becoming into to question. Uh, when you have uh, other heresies, like critical race theory, the idea that there is a racial bias inherent to you, being simply by the fact that you're white. And that therefore brings a whole host of false doctrine. Marxist ideology where religion is a tool, an opium of the people. Socialism becomes the savior. Uh, egalitarianism, women must be just like men. And there's no more difference and we have to be all the same. Or even the way Christians can speak about sexual orientation. We talk about no one can tell what, what a man or a woman is these days. At the Supreme Court of United States, can you believe? And churches are like looking at culture and they're saying, you know, and you know, maybe we have to kind of and they're flirting with these ideas. Even among so-called conservative churches. The more subtle thing is that you may have people who reject those things and those false teachings, but they come up with their own definition. Undercover, they're still helping propagating the same heresy. That's a problem. Maybe because they want to keep their position of influence. Maybe they're afraid of controversy. And so they remain silent. And tragically, the church suffers. It swept away in the same apostasy. How many professing Christians today can fit in this description? They appear to be good. Respectable churchgoers. They... Proclaim to know God, but they deny Him with their works. They might even have an obsession for external matters of religion. They claim to, to believe in God. They have listened to countless sermons. They know ins and outs of some of the theological ins and outs. They judge that they are better than other sinners. They're 
There you have the lack of grace. That, and what makes them all the more deceitful is whatever form of godliness they have, it denies its power by the action. It remains powerless religion. It is unable to truly transform their life and other people's life. Once they turn their mask off, once the lights sh- switch off at night, comes to the day-to-day action, lifestyle, they clearly show a different nature, a different whole behavior. And that, friend, is the behavior of an unregenerate man, still slave of sin, still trying to earn God's favor by works of the flesh. How do I get to heaven? By trying to be good. As opposed to realizing, listen, I'm a wretched sinner. I got nothing. And if it wasn't for the mercy of God and for what He did for me at the cross. And I'm so thankful. And out of that thankfulness now, out of that grace, I now want to serve. I want to do good works out of faith. Is that you this evening? That you are still living in the older man? I invite you to turn to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means realizing you have broken million commandments from God million of times and you are unable to keep that on your own I tried to be good as a Catholic but I, it didn't work because of there's still within there's still sin within and there's still false teachings there lies that were laying within but Jesus is the truth he is all the truth and he dies in your place and so let your mind be filled with the purity of God. Then when God fills your mind, whatever is good, honorable, and, and worthy of, of your attention, you fix your mind on those things, then you will not struggle with dealing with things of this world in, in a way that is unbalanced, that is driven left and right like the waves of the sea. If Christ sets you free, you're free indeed, which here means free also from the deception, the lies on this world. That this world lies under the the deception of the evil one. Through false teaching in particular we saw tonight. So to conclude friends. The Bible tells us that many deceivers have gone out into the world. That there is an invisible reality behind those type of, you could call it differences or uh, misunderstandings. But in reality there's there's actually uh, demonic doctrine at work. And the challenging aspect in the church is when they rise from within. Enemies within the gates of the church. Entering the heresy, moral behavior. Think of it like the story, uh, the Greek story of the Trojan horse, right? They couldn't take the, the city by fight. The walls were too high. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to build this horse. We're going to put all the soldiers inside and we're going to tell them, hey, we got a gift for you. It's nice. It's a gift, right? That's, that's how false doctrine appeals to Christian. And you let it into the church. And then you find yourself surrounded by all sort of danger until you're defeated. Like never before, friends, the churches today in North America under attack in this very point. False doctrine coupled with immorality. There are many professing Christians whose lifestyle. And I know you can tell me... Names and people you have in your mind that, that they, they tell you that they know God, but they don't actually know God. We saw last time, it's through the way that you co- contrast all this from sweeping over the church, is through a plurality of qualified men who know how to defend the truth. And that we as a church can become healthy 
and we hold our ground with the earthquake. Because I'm telling you, it's a huge earthquake that has already almost split open countless of churches right now. They're standing on one side of the fault line and the other side of the fault line. And so we must stay on the alert. Take action as needed when the issue arises, dividing Christians to have our antennas up. Because even if Satan can quote scripture out of context, friends, do not be surprised when it happens in the church. Because our text today teaches us that we should have nothing to do with graceless people and their teaching, but rather we should expose them openly, just like Ephesians says. Let us pray.